0: Hi everyone, quick message before the pond begins. With the SAG Astra and WGA strikes having come to their conclusion for now with some tentative agreements, it's time to release the concluding half of our July Persuasion Princess Switch Switched Again arc. When last we left off, Juliet and Catherine had gone their separate ways after being convinced that they will never be on the same page about Christmas movies, or ships in literature. With a podcast in jeopardy, how will this story end? Find out now and stay tuned this month for our winter arc covering Les Miserables alongside Carly Rae Jepson's It's Not Christmas Till Somebody Cries. <laughs> listeners it is simply the case that no matter one's heartbreak personal or professional like christmas comes each year the show must go on the year cannot come to its close without the holiday and christmas in july could not be the same without a pod for castmas just as jane austen wrote persuasion against failing health We both have been dealing with our own health issues, including an incredibly poorly timed case of laryngitis. Yet another of Catherine's many recent disappointments. So today, amidst our co-host breakup, I'd like to share some letters from our audience on some delightful combinations of Jane Austen's novel Persuasion and the Netflix Christmas sequel, The Princess Switch. Switched again. Here's our first letter.
1: Dear Albipod Pod for Castmas, There seems to be something that nearly every character in both Persuasion and the Princess Switch has in common. Everyone is handsome, or at least passably so, and everyone has access to some kind of wealth, capital, or status. This is doubly true of any of the characters considered prospects for one another where a character like Mrs. Smith might be an exception and outside the lines. Given these stories as our model, are romance, comedy, and affairs of the heart only things for the upper class? Is the entry fee for being able to fall in love having one's own flourishing business or the captaincy of an entire ship? What does it say about love, and about Christmas, that we are shown only worlds where everyone is rich, young, and pretty? The characters are so rich, in fact, as to not need to actively work. As put in Persuasion, quote, In fact, as I have long been convinced, that though every profession is necessary and honorable in its turn, it is only the lot of those who are not obliged to follow any, who can live in a regular way in the country, choosing their own hours, following their own pursuits, and living on their own property, without the torment of trying for more. It is only their lot, I say, to hold the blessings of health and a good appearance to the utmost. I know no other set of men but what lose something of their personableness when they cease to be quite young, end quote. That is, that no one who works, no matter the good that their work does, can be considered truly romantically eligible, beautiful, young, or healthy. Are Anne's advanced age or Wentworth's professional occupation exceptions that prove this rule or dispel it? Yours, in Christmas and in health, Emily.
0: Hmm. What an interesting question. The idea that anything so base as working denatures the spirit and lessens a person's beauty, which we do see argued by the more conservative and less sympathetic characters in Persuasion seems to have a parallel in many Christmas movies. It is, of course, a hallmark of hallmark Christmas movies to have a professional woman, your Tabitha Big Cities of the world, learn that actually letting go of work is what's needed to be a romantic woman in the world. However, the Princess Switch switched again, seems to put a lie to the idea. Our princesses, alike in dignity, are both intent on being active. Lady Margaret wants to be a effective and efficient and active ruler involved in her country, not to sit on a throne and live in relative ease. In fact, it is Fiona, our villainess of the piece, who would prefer to retire to an easier life of luxury. But to the idea that everyone, in love and in Christmas, must be rich, young, and pretty, perhaps the Princess Switch switched again, like most of our popular cinema, falls prey to this consideration. But here, Anne Elliot, our protagonist of persuasion, in particular, can indeed save the day as an older and homelier, but no less sweet enamorata.
2: Dear I'll be Pod for Castmas, I'd like to talk about titles. Yours doesn't need much explanation. You take a familiar Christmas phrase and the medium you're using and mash them together in a way that's a little odd, but somehow makes sense. Just like you mash together pieces of media that are again, a little odd, but make sense together. The Princess Switch Switched Again is another pretty explicit title. It's obviously a sequel, but what do you make of persuasion as a title? Jane Austen loves those nouns as titles, places, people, or concepts. Did you know she didn't actually title her work Persuasion, though? Her original title was The Elliots." Her brother Henry changed it when publishing the novel after her death. Persuasion as a concept and as an action permeates the book. It feels like every chapter someone is being, or unable to be, persuaded to do or think something. We see this in Princess Switch switched again, too. Stacy and Olivia are able to persuade Lady Margaret into switching so she can give Kevin another chance. Kevin is persuaded, first by Antonio and then later by Fiona, to rethink his relationship with Lady Margaret. Imagine that, allowing someone else's words to dictate your feelings, or to convince you to act against your feelings. It's easy to think of Anne's journey in terms of She was persuaded by Lady Russell not to marry Wentworth, and now she's persuaded to marry him. But I would argue that what makes this book compelling is that Anne Elliot's persuasion never really changes. Not persuasion in terms of convincing someone to do something, but persuasion in terms of a particular set of beliefs. Anne is of the persuasion that marriage should be driven by both internal and external considerations. Her family and their opinions, though often silly, matter to her deeply. And it is Anne's persuasion in favor of loyalty and love that draws Wentworth to her and keeps him in love with her even after eight years apart. Yours persuasively, Wesley.
0: Allowing someone else's words to dictate your feelings, or to convince you to act against your feelings? Oh no, what have I done cancelling our Christmas podcast only over the miscounsel and inconsideration of the very Christmas season we have come to study? Perhaps there is true attachment and constancy among men. Perhaps among women, too. But I find myself failing both categories. Oh, if only I could know how Catherine feels. Certainly she must be well and truly over our Christmas consideration and moving on to greener podcasts I must live my life in awareness of that love lost and cherish what loyalty I can muster from the love and podcasts I have not lost like the Office Hours podcast on the Moonshot Network's Patreon at patreon.com slash moonshot network oh let's See the next letter. Maybe it can raise my Christmas spirits.
3: Dear Albipod for Cassius, I think there's a missing element in the discussion of precedent for villains in The Princess Switch, switched again. The first movie, The Princess Switch, largely doesn't have a villain. Instead, it's the circumstances of class and the worries thereto that supplement the strife. This is the same for Persuasion, the story that precedes it with Anne and Wentworth's breaking up, is largely villainless. Lady Russell is to blame for breaking them up, but she offers her advice, however dour or dire, in Anne's best interest. However, in the sequel, Switched Again, and in the present day of Persuasion, there are villains, scheming ones who seek to gain their fortune and secure their position of class by marrying our protagonist, or at least preventing their marriage to anyone else. In Persuasion, we have Mr. Elliot, Anne's cousin as the clear antagonist, whose schemes are only made clear at the story's close. His claim to the Elliot fortune could only be more secured by ensuring Anne's hand in marriage, or, at the very least, by ensuring that Anne's father, Sir Walter, does not remarry under any circumstances. His mirror in the movie is the noble Antonio, who wants to marry Margaret just before or just after she is coronated but will settle for defanging and destroying her potential pairing with the more relatable and down-to-earth Kevin. Mr. Elliot is to type with Jane Austen's typical scoundrels, stopping short of the admirability or Byronicism of your average Heathcliff. Antonio, on the other hand, is to type with a different character. That's right, Antoine from the Archie Comics imprint of Sonic the Hedgehog. It's a clear modeling. A rich, snooty, former member of the previous Monarch's administration now seeking to wheedle his way into the power and heart of the young woman who is now heir. Antoine guides Princess Sally Chipmunk through those occasions where etiquette and decorum are necessary, just like Antonio guides Lady Margaret as she prepares to be queen. And just the same, Antonio exists as a foil to Kevin, a snooty, assuming man, jealous of his down-to-earth but thousands time more charming counterpart, and of the fact that his dear lady's heart really does belong with this undeserving man. Antoine, in the exact same way, is jealous of Sally's partnership with Sonic the Hedgehog, and wants nothing more than to be where Sonic is, a hero to the people and well compensated for the measure. That's right, Kevin the Baker from the Princess Switch franchise, now perhaps Prince Kevin the Baker or Lord Consort Kevin the Baker, is a perfect analog to Sonic the Hedgehog. May all your pods and hogs be full of hedge and light, civil.
0: Oh my gosh, what a fascinating concept. I'm glad you mentioned that present-day Persuasion does have villains, because the reveal of Mr. Elliot's villainy at the story's denouement is almost cartoonish in its own right. I do think we might extend the hand of disdain towards Mr. Walter Elliot, and even possibly scorn Anne's sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, as well. Perhaps that is too far, but a lack of love to our own dear heroine Anne is enough to earn a certain kind of scorn. Kevin, the extremely handsome baker, as an analogue to Sonic the Hedgehog, is... unexpected. I had thought we had left all discussion of chili dogs behind us with Frosty the Snowman. Or, Or was that Frosty Returns? To be entirely honest, I love a chili dog as much as Sonic the Hedgehog does. And I, by proxy, like anything that lets me compare myself to Kevin. So this theory is a win in my book. Have I mentioned lately how good he looks in a tuxedo in this movie? Because if you haven't seen The Princess Switch* Switched Again, which I don't blame you for because the movie's like, it it's fine, but it's not like you're not missing you know, a landmark of cinema here. But he looks so good when he, you know, gets all dressed up and everything. Obviously, he looks good anyways. In the first movie, we get to see him shirtless, the whole thing with the toothbrush and everything. But in this one, they kind of dress him down and then he dresses up and he looks so good in a suit. (sighs) Which makes me wonder... I wonder how Sonic the Hedgehog would look in a tuxedo,
4: you know? To whom it may be concerned, I am writing to nominate an outstanding performance in The Princess Switch Switched Again for a Best Acting Oscar or Emmy or whatever the highest award that Netflix movies are eligible for. I truly believe credit should go where credit is earned, And, for that reason, I would like to nominate for the highest possible acting reward, Vanessa Hudgens' Eyebrows. Vanessa Hudgens plays three roles, and at any given moment audiences can tell which role she is inhabiting on the basis of the upper half of her face alone. While Lady Margaret, her eyebrows maintain a regal arch. She is poised and confident, but also questioning. The curve in her eyebrows and hesitance in her brow betray the sense that something is missing, that becoming queen will not offer her complete fulfillment in life. Stacey, meanwhile, is prone to raising her eyebrows with knowing confidence, or sometimes genuine concern. Regardless, she is always in control and always authentically processing her emotions. Fiona is the opposite of authentic. Her eyebrows are as thick as her mischief. They are like an elevator, going straight up and down as she either raises or furrows them in over exaggerated facial expressions that she hopes will mask her complete lack of sincerity. So, yes, Vanessa Hudgens' eyebrows are a masterclass in acting. I particularly am drawn to the scene where Stacy's husband speaks candidly about his marital insecurities to Stacy thinking she is Lady Margaret, he seems to need distance from the real Stacy to be honest and vulnerable, and so opens up to her lookalike. The audience can clearly see Stacy's surprise and tenderness towards her husband, thank you Vanessa Hudgens eyebrows, even if the prince does not know who he is speaking to. This whole franchise questions what it means to really know someone, Can you tell your loved one apart from another who has the same appearance? Persuasion, on the other hand, is about knowing someone despite the change in appearance that comes with time. After eight years apart, when Wentworth is asked for his opinion on becoming reacquainted with Anne, he describes her as so altered that he should not have known her again. This mortifies Anne because for her, Wentworth is not altered at all. Or, not for the worse, the years which had destroyed her youth and bloom had only given him a more glowing, manly, open look, in no respect lessening his personal advantages. She had seen the same Frederick Wentworth. By the end, though, we learn that Wentworth's heart sees no difference in Anne. His letter tells her, "'I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been. Weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. I do believe Anne and Wentworth would be able to recognize each other. Throughout the book, Anne can recognize Wentworth's true opinions even when societal politeness causes him to hold his tongue. Even after eight years, she knows him on a deeper level than his friends or families. Either that, or she's a really good reader of eyebrows. Best, a Castmas fan.
0: It really is impressive to be able to distinguish these different characters from one another. Like, obviously, the easy joke to make about the fact that it's kind of hard to tell Edward and Antonio from one another. (laughs) And in the first movie, I was convinced that Stacy's ex-boyfriend, Paul, I want to say, and Edward could be played by the same actor. But Vanessa Hudgens does play three characters-ish. She plays, you know, each of them also playing each other. So you could say it's like reduplicated or maybe she plays the romantic character and she plays the scheming character. So you could kind of diminish it down to two. But if you're just going by names, Stacy, Margaret, Fiona, three characters. And the distinguishing of these by her eyebrows, I I agree, is, is pretty impressive. The question, can you tell your loved one apart from another who has the same appearance? I don't know. Yes, I think so. Except insofar as the fact that, like, all people are always changing. And, well, I mean, Catherine would say that characters don't change. That that's, you know, an intrinsic part of fiction. Which I've always struggled with as an idea. But people contain multitudes kind of definitionally, we, we are responding to our environments. You can't go home again. You can't step in the same river twice. You can't love the same person <laughs> again. And so it's, it's an interesting sort of question that Anne and Wentworth say, yeah, of course, Regardless of the fact that people contain multitudes, regardless of the fact that people can seem to change, regardless of the fact that your environment and your circumstances may change, you can kind of bake all of that in. You can, you can consider that just part of life. You can consider that just part of romance and say, I'm going to distinguish a person regardless of any other extrinsic factors. I'm going to say, whatever combination of multitudes that person is, I'm going to love them, and I'm going to love them as both I change and they change. And that, I think, really is a kind of romantic. I don't know. The more I revisit Persuasion, the more I really like Anne and Wentworth as a... Austin couple, maybe more than any of the other main couples? Like, okay, obviously, you know, it's hard to beat Jane and Bingley, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't think they count in, in the same sort of way.
5: Dear Alby Pod for Castmas, I'm loving the podcast, but I wanted to chime in since I don't think there's been nearly enough Olivia appreciation on here. All Hallmark, or, Netflix trying to plagiarize Hallmark, Christmas movies need a precocious kid. Usually, the child of a widow or otherwise available single parent, this kid is always smarter than the grown-ups when it comes to matters of the heart. In Princess Switch, Switched Again, this trope is filled by Kevin's daughter Olivia. This is the kid who, in the first movie, figured out immediately that her dad's best friend Stacy has been replaced by an imposter. And in our most natural sequel, she is perhaps the single character most responsible for the princess's switching again. In a subversion of the fairy tale tradition of children having horrible stepmothers, she is actually good friends with Lady Margaret, her would be stepmother. Olivia ships Lady Margaret and her dad so much that she never sends the RSVP saying they can't attend the coronation, allowing them to make a last minute appearance. She also eavesdrops on Antonio telling Kevin to back off from Lady Margaret and immediately runs to Stacy, letting her know they need to escalate their plans to get Kevin and Lady M together. Usually in movies such as these, the child actor is not very good. Good, you get the vibe, that they cast the kid of whoever the director owed a favor to. One of the charms of this movie, switched again, is that Olivia is played by a pleasantly endearing and not obnoxious child actress, Mia Lloyd. Her performance of Olivia is only surpassed by the performance of Olivia in the first movie by, wait for it, Alexa Adiosan. That's right, there's yet another layer of switching and double identities beyond the surface level plot of the film. It begs the question, who is the real princess who gets switched? Is it Stacy De Novo, Lady Margaret, or up-and-coming child star Alexa Adiosan? Yours, and Olivia Advocate.
0: All women are princesses. Maybe? I don't know. But I do think both Olivias do a great job in both movies. It remains to be seen whether in the third movie, we have a third Olivia, a return of one of the previous two Olivias, or both of them returning to play the role in Rep. How pivotal Olivia is in The Princess Switch Switched Again makes me think about how plot important the otherwise forgettable nibblings of Anne in the story end up being. Children help distinguish Mary Elliot, or rather, Mary Musgrove, from her elder sisters. Without them, she would only have her hypochondriac personality to distinguish her at all from the eldest Elizabeth, as the two of them have similarly boring and honestly kind of gross senses of pride, just like their father, Sir Walter. The children, in turn, are rambunctious, spoiled, and ill-attended by their mother, who seems to have very little interest in being a mother, except insofar as it could garner attention from other adults. As a result, Anne ends up acting as sick maid for much of the novel's story, delaying her departure from the environs of the first act, and both allowing her to be independently near Wentworth, and to avoid as many dinner parties as possible where he might be present. In truth, I think the character that might be the best analog for Olivia in Persuasion is our beloved Mrs. Smith. She sees the truth for what it really is, believes in Anne just like Olivia believes in Margaret, and even can help exposit the villainous Mr. Elliot's transgression, just like Olivia can recount what Antonio says to Kevin. The generosity that Anne shows towards Mrs. Smith and others is a reflection of kindness, Like, Fiona's care for the orphanages. Well, wait, not like that at all, because Fiona is using it as a front. But perhaps like Margaret's own care for the orphanages of St. Michael's and St. Matthew's instead? (laughs) Oh, it looks like at the last minute there's… there's one letter left. Dear Juliet,
6: As I hear all these other voices, I find myself much like Captain Wentworth. I can no longer listen in silence. I owe you a most sincere apology. The continent of Europe, much like Lady Russell, led me astray from my own true feelings and values. As I write to you from my studio in upstate New York, I look back at my travels fondly and realize my two months abroad were much like Christmas, a joyous, exciting time outside the routines of the everyday, a chance for magic and merriment, and an opportunity to reaffirm what type of person I'd like to be during the rest of the year. I'm back in America, readjusting to my routine of laundry, groceries, and work. And the person I'd most like to be is certainly not the one I'm becoming now. A person estranged from the bright mind who has enriched my life through astute analysis of literature, belly laugh-inducing wit, and a deep appreciation for all things Christmas. Juliet, will you, friend, get back together with me? Can we make this podcast work again? If so, follow me in merry measure, Catherine.
0: Yes. Yes, I will, Catherine. In truth, just like Anne, I discovered that I have never been inconstant in my desire to share this Christmas podcast together with you, and I am so excited for the future that we might share together. Thank you to our audience, to our listeners for listening. Our letter readers for this episode were Emily Wesley. Sybil, Ryan, Covey, and of course, Catherine. I've been your host, Juliet, and we'll see you this winter for another Casmus time. Until then, happy Casmus to all, and to all, a pod night.
5: Need a new campaign idea for your tabletop role-playing game? Looking to improve your GMing skills or become a better player? Curious about exploring the origins of your favorite races, classes, and creatures? Then check out the Maniculum Podcast, where we show you how to use medieval history to your advantage. We're your hosts, Mac and Zoe, a professional medievalist and a AAA game developer, and together we use modern game design techniques to uncover the origins of your favorite tropes and adventures from medieval manuscripts. In each episode, we explore a new medieval manuscript, its connections to modern TTRPGs, and teach you how to adapt these tales into compelling campaigns and amazing adventures. Whether you're looking to recreate the noble Arthurian tales or incorporate weird and wacky medieval monsters into your campaign, the Maniculum Podcast has you covered. Listen to our fortnightly podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcasting app now.